Section 2 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. Chapter 1. The Mistress. Part 2. 27. After luncheon, morning calls and visits may be made and received. These may be divided under three heads those of ceremony, friendship, and congratulation or condolence. Visits of ceremony or courtesy, which occasionally merge into those of friendship, are to be paid under various circumstances. Thus, they are uniformly required after dining at a friend's house, or after a ball, picnic, or any other party. These visits should be short, a stay of from fifteen to twenty minutes being quite sufficient. A lady paying a visit may remove her boa or neckerchief, but neither her shawl nor bonnet. When other visitors are announced, it is well to retire as soon as possible, taking care to let it appear that their arrival is not the cause. When they are quietly seated, and the bustle of their entrance is over, rise from your chair, taking a kind leave of the hostess, and bowing politely to the guests. Should you call at an inconvenient time, not having ascertained the luncheon hour, or from any other inadvertence, retire as soon as possible, without, however, showing that you feel yourself an intruder. It is not difficult for any well-bred or even good-tempered person to know what to say on such an occasion, and on politely withdrawing, a promise can be made to call again if the lady you have called on appear really disappointed. 28. In paying visits of friendship, it will not be so necessary to be guided by etiquette as in paying visits of ceremony, and if a lady be pressed by her friend to remove her shawl and bonnet, it can be done if it will not interfere with her subsequent arrangements. It is, however, requisite to call at suitable times, and to avoid staying too long, if your friend is engaged. The courtesies of society should ever be maintained, even in the domestic circle and amongst the nearest friends. During these visits the manners should be easy and cheerful, and the subjects of conversation such as may be readily terminated. Serious discussions or arguments are to be altogether avoided, and there is much danger and impropriety in expressing opinions of those persons and characters with whom, perhaps, there is but a slight acquaintance. See 6, 7, and 9. It is not advisable at any time to take favourite dogs into another lady's drawing-room, for many persons have an absolute dislike to such animals, and besides this there is always a chance of a breakage of some article occurring, through their leaping and bounding here and there, sometimes very much to the fear and annoyance of the hostess. Her children also, unless they are particularly well-trained and orderly, and she is on exceedingly friendly terms with the hostess, should not accompany a lady in making morning calls. Where a lady, however, pays her visits in a carriage, the children can be taken in the vehicle, and remain in it until the visit is over. 29. For morning calls it is well to be neatly attired. For a costume very different to that you generally wear, or anything approaching an evening dress, will be very much out of place. As a general rule, it may be said, both in reference to this and all other occasions, it is better to be underdressed than overdressed. A strict account should be kept of ceremonial visits, and notice how soon your visits have been returned. An opinion may thus be formed as to whether your frequent visits are, or are not, desirable. There are naturally instances when the circumstances of old age or ill health will preclude any return of a call, but when this is the case it must not interrupt the discharge of the duty. 30. In paying visits of condolence, it is to be remembered that they should be paid within a week after the event which occasions them. If the acquaintance, however, is but slight, 
Then immediately after the family has appeared at public worship. A lady should send in her card, and if her friends be able to receive her, the visitor's manner and conversation should be subdued and in harmony with the character of her visit. Courtesy would dictate that a mourning card should be used, and that visitors in paying condoling visits should be dressed in black, either silk or plain-coloured apparel. Sympathy with the affliction of the family is thus expressed, and these attentions are, in such cases, pleasing and soothing. In all these visits, if your acquaintance or friend be not at home, a card should be left. If in a carriage, the servant will answer your inquiry and receive your card. If paying your visits on foot, give your card to the servant in the hall, but leave to go in and rest should on no account be asked. The form of words, not at home, may be understood in different senses, but the only courteous way is to receive them as being perfectly true. You may imagine that the lady of the house is really at home, and that she would make an exception in your favour, or you may think that your acquaintance is not desired, but in either case not the slightest word is to escape you, which would suggest on your part such an impression. 31. In receiving morning calls, the foregoing description of the etiquette to be observed in paying them will be of considerable service. It is to be added, however, that the occupations of drawing, music, or reading should be suspended on the entrance of morning visitors. If a lady, however, be engaged with light needlework, and none other is appropriate in the drawing-room, it may not be, under some circumstances, inconsistent with good breeding to quietly continue it during conversation, particularly if the visit be protracted or the visitors be gentlemen. Formerly the custom was to accompany all visitors quitting the house to the door, and there take leave of them. But modern society, which has thrown off a great deal of this kind of ceremony, now merely requires that the lady of the house should rise from her seat, shake hands or courtesy in accordance with the intimacy she has with her guests, and ring the bell to summon the servant to attend them and open the door. In making a first call, either upon a newly married couple or persons newly arrived in the neighbourhood, a lady should leave her husband's card together with her own, at the same time, stating that the profession or business in which he is engaged has prevented him from having the pleasure of paying the visit with her. It is a custom with many ladies when on the eve of an absence from their neighbourhood to leave or send their own and husband's cards with the letters PPC in the right corner. These letters are the initials of the French words pour prendre congé, meaning to take leave. 32. The morning calls being paid or received, and their etiquette properly attended to, the next great event of the day in most establishments is the dinner. And we only propose here to make a few general remarks on this important topic, as in future pages the whole art of dining will be thoroughly considered, with reference to its economy, comfort, and enjoyment. 33. In giving or accepting an invitation for dinner, the following is the form of words generally made use of. They, however, can be varied in proportion to the intimacy or position of the hosts and guests. Mr. and Mrs. A. present their compliments to Mr. and Mrs. B., and request the honour, or hope to have the pleasure, of their company to dinner on Wednesday, the 6th of December next. A Street, November 13th, 1859. RSVP. The letters in the corner imply, Répondez, s'il vous plaît, meaning, an answer will oblige. The reply accepting the invitation is couched in the following terms. Mr. and Mrs. B. present their compliments to Mr. and Mrs. A., and will do themselves the honour of, or will have much pleasure in, accepting their kind invitation to dinner on the 6th of December next. B. Square, November 18th, 1859. 
Cards, or invitations for a dinner party, should be issued a fortnight or three weeks, sometimes even a month, beforehand. And care should be taken by the hostess in the selection of the invited guests, that they should be suited to each other. Much also of the pleasure of a dinner party will depend on the arrangement of the guests at table, so as to form a due admixture of talkers and listeners, the grave and the gay. If an invitation to dinner is accepted, the guests should be punctual, and the mistress ready in her drawing-room to receive them. At some periods it has been considered fashionable to come late to dinner, but lately nous avons changé tout cela. 34. The half-hour before dinner has always been considered as the great ordeal through which the mistress, in giving a dinner-party, will either pass with flying colours, or lose many of her laurels. The anxiety to receive her guests, her hope that all will be present in due time, her trust in the skill of her cook, and the attention of other domestics, all tend to make these few minutes a trying time. The mistress, however, must display no kind of agitation, but show her tact in suggesting light and cheerful subjects of conversation, which will be much aided by the introduction of any particular new book, curiosity of art, or article of vertu, which may pleasantly engage the attention of the company. Waiting for dinner, however, is a trying time, and there are few who have not felt. How sad it is to sit and pine, the long half-hour before we dine, upon our watches oft to look, then wonder at the clock and cook, and strive to laugh in spite of fate, but laughter forced soon quits the room, and leaves it in its former gloom. But lo, the dinner now appears, the object of our hopes and fears, the end of all our pain. In giving an entertainment of this kind, the mistress should remember that it is her duty to make her guests feel happy, comfortable, and quite at their ease, and the guests should also consider that they have come to the house of their hostess to be happy. Thus an opportunity is given to all for innocent enjoyment and intellectual improvement, when also acquaintances may be formed that may prove invaluable through life, and information gained that will enlarge the mind. Many celebrated men and women have been great talkers, and amongst others the genial Sir Walter Scott, who spoke freely to every one, and a favourite remark of whom it was, that he never did so without learning something he didn't know before. 35. Dinner being announced, the host offers his arm to, and places on his right hand at the dinner-table, the lady to whom he desires to pay most respect, either on account of her age, position, or from her being the greatest stranger in the party. If this lady be married and her husband present, the latter takes the hostess to her place at the table, and seats himself at her right hand. The rest of the company follow in couples, as specified by the master and mistress of the house, arranging the party according to their rank and other circumstances which may be known to the host and hostess. It will be found of great assistance to the placing of a party at the dinner-table, to have the names of the guests neatly and correctly written on small cards, and placed at that part of the table where it is desired they should sit. With respect to the number of guests, it has often been said that a private dinner-party should consist of not less than the number of graces, or more than that of the muses. A party of ten or twelve is perhaps, in a general way, sufficient to enjoy themselves and be enjoyed. White kid gloves are worn by ladies at dinner-parties, but should be taken off before the business of dining commences. 36. The guests being seated at the dinner-table, the lady begins to help the soup, which is handed round, commencing with the gentleman on her right and on her left, and continuing in the same order till all are served. 
it is generally established as a rule not to ask for soup or fish twice, as in so doing part of the company may be kept waiting too long for the second course, when perhaps a little revenge is taken by looking at the awkward consumer of a second portion. This rule, however, may under various circumstances not be considered as binding. It is not usual, where taking wine is en règle, for a gentleman to ask a lady to take wine, until the fish or soup is finished, and then the gentleman honoured by sitting on the right of the hostess may politely inquire if she will do him the honour of taking wine with him. This will act as a signal to the rest of the company, the gentleman of the house most probably requesting the same pleasure of the ladies at his right and left. At many tables, however, the custom or fashion of drinking wine in this manner is abolished, and the servant fills the glasses of the guests with the various wines suited to the course which is in progress. 37. When dinner is finished, the dessert is placed on the table, accompanied with finger-glasses. It is the custom of some gentlemen to wet a corner of the napkin, but the hostess, whose behaviour will set the tone to all the ladies present, will merely wet the tips of her fingers, which will serve all the purposes required. The French and other continentals have a habit of gargling the mouth, but it is a custom which no English gentlewoman should in the slightest degree imitate. 38. When fruit has been taken, and a glass or two of wine passed round, the time will have arrived when the hostess will rise, and thus give the signal for the ladies to leave the gentlemen and retire to the drawing-room. The gentlemen of the party will rise at the same time, and he who is nearest the door will open it for the ladies, all remaining courteously standing until the last lady has withdrawn. Dr. Johnson has a curious paragraph on the effects of a dinner on men. Before dinner, he says, men meet with great inequality of understanding, and those who are conscious of their inferiority have the modesty not to talk. When they have drunk wine, every man feels himself happy, and loses that modesty, and grows impudent and vociferous. But he is not improved. He is only not sensible of his defects. This is rather severe, but there may be truth in it. In former times, when the bottle circulated freely amongst the guests, it was necessary for the ladies to retire earlier than they do at present, for the gentlemen of the company soon became unfit to conduct themselves with that decorum which is essential in the presence of ladies. Thanks, however, to the improvements in modern society, and the high example shown to the nation by its most illustrious personages, temperance is, in these happy days, a striking feature in the character of a gentleman. Delicacy of conduct toward the female sex has increased with the esteem in which they are now universally held, and thus the very early withdrawing of the ladies from the dining-room is to be deprecated. A lull in the conversation will seasonably indicate the moment for the ladies' departure. 39. After dinner invitations may be given, by which we wish to be understood invitations for the evening. The time of the arrival of these visitors will vary according to their engagements, or sometimes will be varied in obedience to the caprices of fashion. Guests invited for the evening are, however, generally considered at liberty to arrive whenever it will best suit themselves, usually between nine and twelve, unless earlier hours are specifically named. By this arrangement many fashionable people, and others who have numerous engagements to fulfil, often contrive to make their appearance at two or three parties in the course of one evening. 40. The etiquette of the dinner-party table being disposed of, let us now enter slightly into that of an evening party or ball. The invitations issued and accepted for either of these will be written in the same style as those already described for a dinner-party. They should be sent out at least three weeks before the day fixed for the event 
and should be replied to within a week of their receipt. By attending to these courtesies, the guests will have time to consider their engagements and prepare their dresses, and the hostess will also know what will be the number of her party. If the entertainment is to be simply an evening party, this must be specified on the card or note of invitation. Short or verbal invitations, except where persons are exceedingly intimate or are very near relations, are very far from proper, although of course in this respect, and in many other respects, very much always depends on the manner in which the invitation is given. True politeness, however, should be studied even amongst the nearest friends and relations, for the mechanical forms of good breeding are of great consequence, and too much familiarity may have, for its effect, the destruction of friendship. 41. As the ladies and gentlemen arrive, each should be shown to a room exclusively provided for their reception, and in that set apart for the ladies, attendants should be in waiting to assist in uncloaking, and in helping to arrange the hair and toilet of those who require it. It will be found convenient, in those cases where the number of guests is large, to provide numbered tickets, so that they can be attached to the cloaks and shawls of each lady, a duplicate of which should be handed to the guest. Coffee is sometimes provided in this or an ante-room for those who would like to partake of it. 42. As the visitors are announced by the servant, it is not necessary for the lady of the house to advance each time towards the door, but merely to rise from her seat to receive their courtesies and congratulations. If indeed the hostess wishes to show particular favour to some peculiarly honoured guests, she may introduce them to others, whose acquaintance she may imagine will be especially suitable and agreeable. It is very often the practice of the master of the house to introduce one gentleman to another, but occasionally the lady performs this office, when it will of course be polite for the persons thus introduced to take their seats together for the time being. The custom of non-introduction is very much in vogue in many houses, and guests are thus left to discover for themselves the position and qualities of the people around them. The servant indeed calls out the names of all the visitors as they arrive, but in many instances mispronounces them so that it will not be well to follow this information as if it were an unerring guide. In our opinion it is a cheerless and depressing custom, although in thus speaking we do not allude to the large assemblies of the aristocracy, but to the smaller parties of the middle classes. 43. A separate room or convenient buffet should be appropriated for refreshments, and to which the dancers may retire, and cakes and biscuits, with wine negus, lemonade and ices, handed round. A supper is also mostly provided at the private parties of the middle classes, and this requires on the part of the hostess a great deal of attention and supervision. It usually takes place between the first and second parts of the program of the dances, of which there should be several prettily written or printed copies distributed about the ballroom. In private parties, a lady is not to refuse the invitation of a gentleman to dance, unless she be previously engaged. The hostess must be supposed to have asked to her house only those persons whom she knows to be perfectly respectable and of unblemished character, as well as pretty equal in position, and thus to decline the offer of any gentleman present would be a tacit reflection on the master and mistress of the house. It may be mentioned here, more especially for the young who will read this book, that introductions at balls and evening parties cease with the occasion that calls them forth no introduction at these times giving a gentleman a right to address afterwards a lady. She is consequently free next morning to pass her partner at a ball of the previous evening without the slightest recognition. 44. The ball is generally opened, that is, the first place in the first quadrille is occupied, by the lady of the house. 
When anything prevents this, the host will usually lead off the dance with the lady who is either the highest in rank or the greatest stranger. It will be well for the hostess, even if she be very partial to the amusement and a graceful dancer, not to participate in it to any great extent, lest her lady guests should have occasion to complain of her monopoly of the gentlemen and other causes of neglect. A few dances will suffice to show her interest in the entertainment, without unduly trenching on the attention due her guests. In all its parts a ball should be perfect, the music and the banquet and the wine, the garlands, the rose odors, and the flowers. The hostess or host, during the progress of a ball, will courteously accost and chat with their friends, and take care that the ladies are furnished with seats, and that those who wish to dance are provided with partners. A gentle hint from the hostess conveyed in a quiet, ladylike manner, that certain ladies have remained unengaged during several dances, is sure not to be neglected by any gentleman. Thus will be studied the comfort and enjoyment of the guests, and no lady in leaving the house will be able to feel the chagrin and disappointment of not having been invited to stand up in a dance during the whole of the evening. 45. When any of the carriages of the guests are announced, or the time for their departure arrived, they should make a slight intimation to the hostess, without, however, exciting any observation, that they are about to depart. If this cannot be done, however, without creating too much bustle, it will be better for the visitors to retire quietly without taking their leave. During the course of the week the hostess will expect to receive from every guest a call, where it is possible, or cards expressing the gratification experienced from her entertainment. This attention is due to every lady for the pains and troubles she has been at, and tends to promote social kindly feelings. 46. Having thus discoursed of parties of pleasure, it will be an interesting change to return to the more domestic business of the house, although all the details we have been giving of dinner-parties, balls, and the like, appertain to the department of the mistress. Without a knowledge of the etiquette to be observed on these occasions, a mistress would be unable to enjoy and appreciate those friendly, pleasant meetings which give, as it were, a fillip to life, and make the quiet, happy home of an English gentlewoman appear the more delightful and enjoyable. In their proper places, all that is necessary to be known respecting the dishes and appearances of the breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper-tables will be set forth in this work. 47. A family dinner at home, compared with either giving or going to a dinner-party, is of course of much more frequent occurrence, and many will say of much greater importance. Both, however, have to be considered with a view to their nicety and enjoyment, and the latter more particularly with reference to economy. These points will be especially noted in the following pages on household cookery. Here we will only say that, for both mistress and servants, as well in large as small households, it will be found by far the better plan to cook and serve the dinner, and to lay the tablecloth and the sideboard, with the same cleanliness, neatness, and scrupulous exactness, whether it be for the mistress herself alone, a small family, or for company. If this rule be strictly adhered to, all will find themselves increase in managing skill, whilst a knowledge of their daily duties will become familiar, and enable them to meet difficult occasions with ease, and overcome any amount of obstacles. 48. Of the manner of passing evenings at home, there is none pleasanter than in such recreative enjoyments as those which relax the mind from its severer duties, whilst they stimulate it with a gentle delight. Where there are young people forming a part of the evening circle, interesting and agreeable pastime should especially be promoted. It is of incalculable benefit to them that their homes should possess all the attractions of healthful amusement, comfort, and happiness, for if they do not find pleasure there, they will seek it elsewhere. 
It ought, therefore, to enter into the domestic policy of every parent to make her children feel that home is the happiest place in the world, that to imbue them with this delicious home feeling is one of the choicest gifts a parent can bestow. Light or fancy needlework often forms a portion of the evening's recreation for the ladies of the household, and this may be varied by an occasional game at chess or backgammon. It has often been remarked, too, that nothing is more delightful to the feminine members of a family than the reading aloud of some good standard work or amusing publication. A knowledge of polite literature may thus be obtained by the whole family, especially if the reader is able and willing to explain the more difficult passages of the book, and expatiate on the wisdom and beauties it may contain. This plan, in a great measure, realizes the advice of Lord Bacon, who says, Read not to contradict and refute nor to believe and take for granted, nor to find talk and discourse, but to weigh and consider. 49. In retiring for the night, it is well to remember that early rising is almost impossible, if late going to bed be the order, or rather disorder, of the house. The younger members of a family should go early and at regular hours to their beds, and the domestics as soon as possible after a reasonably appointed hour. Either the master or the mistress of a house should, after all have gone to their separate rooms, see that all is right with respect to the lights and fires below, and no servants should on any account be allowed to remain up after the heads of the house have retired. 50. Having thus gone from early rising to early retiring, there remain only now to be considered a few special positions respecting which the mistress of the house will be glad to receive some specific information. 51. When a mistress takes a house in a new locality, it will be etiquette for her to wait until the older inhabitants of the neighborhood call upon her, thus evincing a desire on their part to become acquainted with the newcomer. It may be that the mistress will desire an intimate acquaintance with but few of her neighbors, but it is to be specially borne in mind that all visits, whether of ceremony, friendship, or condolence, must be punctiliously returned. 52. You may perhaps have been favored with letters of introduction from some of your friends, to persons living in the neighborhood to which you have just come. In this case, enclose the letter of introduction in an envelope with your card. Then, if the person to whom it is addressed calls within the course of a few days, the visit should be returned by you within the week, if possible. Any breach of etiquette in this respect will not be readily excused. In the event of your being invited to dinner under the above circumstances, nothing but necessity should prevent you from accepting the invitation. If, however, there is some distinct reason why you cannot accept, let it be stated frankly and plainly, for politeness and truthfulness should ever be allied. An opportunity should also be taken to call in the course of a day or two, in order to politely express your regret and disappointment at not having been able to avail yourself of their kindness. 53. In giving a letter of introduction, it should always be handed to your friend unsealed courtesy dictates this, as the person whom you are introducing would perhaps wish to know in what manner he or she was spoken of. Should you receive a letter from a friend, introducing you to any person known to and esteemed by the writer, the letter should be immediately acknowledged, and your willingness expressed to do all in your power to carry out his or her wishes. 54. Such are the onerous duties which enter into the position of the mistress of a house, and such are, happily, with a slight but continued attention, of by no means difficult performance. She ought always to remember that she is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega in the government of her establishment, and that it is by her conduct that its whole internal policy is regulated. She is, therefore, a person of far more importance in a community than she usually thinks she is, 
On her pattern her daughters model themselves. By her counsels they are directed. Through her virtues all are honored. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also when he praiseth her. Therefore let each mistress always remember her responsible position, never approving a mean action, nor speaking an unrefined word. Let her conduct be such that her inferiors may respect her, and such as an honorable and right-minded man may look for in his wife and the mother of his children. Let her think of the many compliments and the sincere homage that have been paid to her sex by the greatest philosophers and writers, both in ancient and modern times. Let her not forget that she has to show herself worthy of Campbell's compliment when he said, The world was sad, the garden was a wild, and man, the hermit, sighed, till woman smiled. Let her prove herself, then, the happy companion of man, and able to take unto herself the praises of the pious prelate Jeremy Taylor, who says, A good wife is heaven's last best gift to man, his angel and minister of graces innumerable, his gem of many virtues, his casket of jewels, her voice is sweet music, her smiles his brightest day, her kiss the guardian of his innocence, her arms the pale of his safety, the balm of his health, the balsam of his life, her industry his surest wealth, her economy his safest steward, her lips his faithful counsellors, her bosom the softest pillow of his cares, and her prayers the ablest advocates of heaven's blessings on his head. Cherishing, then, in her breast, the respected utterances of the good and the great, let the mistress of every house rise to the responsibility of its management, so that in doing her duty to all around her, she may receive the genuine reward of respect, love, and affection. Note. Many mistresses have experienced the horrors of house-hunting, and it is well known that three removes are as good, or bad, rather, as a fire. Nevertheless, it being quite evident that we must in these days at least live in houses, and are sometimes obliged to change our residences, it is well to consider some of the conditions which will add to, or diminish, the convenience and comfort of our homes. Although the choice of a house must be dependent on so many different circumstances with different people, that to give any specific directions on this head would be impossible and useless, yet it will be advantageous perhaps to many, if we point out some of those general features as to locality, soil, aspect, etc., to which the attention of all house-takers should be carefully directed. Regarding the locality, we may say, speaking now more particularly of a town-house, that it is very important to the health and comfort of a family, that the neighbourhood of all factories of any kind, producing unwholesome effluvia or smells, should be strictly avoided. Neither is it well to take a house in the immediate vicinity of where a noisy trade is carried on, as it is unpleasant to the feelings, and tends to increase any existing irritation of the system. Referring to soils, it is held as a rule that a gravel soil is superior to any other, as the rain drains through it very quickly, and it is consequently drier and less damp than clay, upon which water rests a far longer time. A clay country, too, is not so pleasant for walking exercise as one in which gravel predominates. The aspect of the house should be well considered, and it should be borne in mind that the more sunlight comes into the house, the healthier is the habitation. The close, fetid smell which assails one on entering a narrow court or street in towns is to be assigned to the want of light, and consequently air. A house with a south or southwest aspect is lighter, warmer, drier, and consequently more healthy than one facing north or northeast. 
Great advances have been made during the last few years in principles of sanitary knowledge, and one of the most essential points to be observed in reference to a house is its drainage, as it has been proved in an endless number of cases that bad or defective drainage is as certain to destroy health as the taking of poisons. This arises from its injuriously affecting the atmosphere, thus rendering the air we breathe unwholesome and deleterious. Let it be borne in mind, then, that unless a house is effectually drained, the health of its inhabitants is sure to suffer, and they will be susceptible of og, rheumatism, diarrhoea, fevers, and cholera. We now come to an all-important point, that of the water supply. The value of this necessary article has also been lately more and more recognized in connection with the question of health and life, and most houses are well supplied with every convenience connected with water. Let it, however, be well understood that no house, however suitable in other respects, can be desirable if this grand means of health and comfort is in the slightest degree scarce or impure. No caution can be too great to see that it is pure and good, as well as plentiful. For knowing as we do that not a single part of our daily food is prepared without it, the importance of its influence on the health of the inmates of a house cannot be overrated. Ventilation is another feature which must not be overlooked. In a general way, enough of air is admitted by the cracks round the doors and windows, but if this be not the case, the chimney will smoke and other plans, such as the placing of a plate of finely perforated zinc in the upper part of the window, must be used. Cold air should never be admitted under the doors, or at the bottom of a room, unless it be close to the fire or stove, for it will flow along the floor towards the fireplace, and thus leave the foul air in the upper part of the room, unpurified, cooling, at the same time unpleasantly and injuriously, the feet and legs of the inmates. The rent of a house, it has been said, should not exceed one-eighth of the whole income of its occupier, and as a general rule we are disposed to assent to this estimate, although there may be many circumstances which would not admit of its being considered infallible. End of section 2